0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. When your celebration of life is prepaid today, your family is protected tomorrow. Planning ahead is truly one of the best gifts you can give your family. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. Bullseye with Jesse
1: Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I just want to say before we get into this next interview, what you're about to hear is very warm and cozy, vibes wise, but it does briefly include one description of a grisly act of violence. So I wanted you to know ahead of time. Okay, anyway. Before Bob Mortimer, the comic and author, became Bob Mortimer, the comic and author, he was Bob Mortimer, the cockroach king, a successful lawyer who represented tenants all over London, whose rental units were infested with cockroaches. In fact, Bob Mortimer didn't even try his hand at comedy until his late 20s, when he met a man named Vic Reeves, an established comic who was playing the London club circuit. Soon, the two of them were a double act in the beloved British comedy tradition. Vic and Bob appeared on dozens of television shows, including variety shows and sitcoms, and several of their own programs. Their brand of humour isn't especially topical. It is very silly, joke-heavy, and extremely British.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to This Is Your Life! With me, the- I'll start. Now, oh, shush, shush, shush. Mm, shush, shush, Now, tonight's victim shall be over there uh, just putting our plaster on his hand. So let's go and start him. Come on, Howie.
0: pat down the plaster to cover the injury which I recently received from fighting Messerschmitts. And, uh, <laughs> oh, yes, that's uh, a battle of the summit. David! What? Oh, have you started us yet? No, you am. You know when I've started, starting, started, started here, because you'll be us. What's that Start. us? David, start. This is the <laughs> Mortimer paired up with comedian Paul Whitehouse for Mortimer and Whitehouse Gone Fishing, a show in which, well, those two comics and old friends go fishing and don't do much
1: else. It is a great show. I'm gathering my followers. I'm warning my foes to stay put. And I'm celebrating victory. All through the power of the wader.
0: You finished? Yeah. Okay, good. These days, Bob Mortimer is also a novelist. He just released The Clementine Complex in the US. It's his first novel, a mystery story set in South London and loosely based on Mortimer's time as a lawyer. It centers on Gary, a legal assistant who gets roped into a fascinating, complex quest after his co worker vanishes. It's a very fun, very funny read. Just An immensely pleasant book. And I'm so excited to have Mortimer on as my guest. Let's get right into it. Bob Mortimer, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. And I so enjoyed your book, The Clementine
1: Complex. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks for reading it.
0: I was disappointed. I I think it was called The Satsuma Complex in the UK. It was, yes. It was. I'm a real Satsuma enthusiast. I see it as really central to my brand. I have a
1: satsuma tree in my backyard. You do,
0: yeah. Did someone convince you that Americans don't know what satsumas were, or is there absolutely. like absolutely?
1: That's what happened. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which, if you've read the book, you know it doesn't really matter whether they know whether you know what Satsuma is or not. But um, (laughs) yeah, they convinced me of that, and I'm not a person who likes to think I know better. You know, it's a different a different country, so I don't know that. That was the advice I was given.
0: Well, when we put out our own edition of it, you you and I can take it back to the Satsuma complex. (laughs) Thank you. Don't worry, I'm a Satsuma influencer. I'll get behind it, and we'll make it a smash. Um, So I know that. When you wrote your memoir, and Away, it was, you know, from reading interviews with you, a bit of a struggle for you to feel like a real writer, quote unquote. And I wonder how you got from there to feeling like you could write a novel.
1: Well, I don't think I even now I feel as if I'm a, a real writer, but I think it was important for my autobiography because I'd never written a book before to assume that I wasn't a real writer and then it would just have my own voice and people could take it or leave it Um, because I kind of hadn't realized at the time that, you know, establishing a voice in a book is obviously the important thing and for my audience here in the UK, it was correct to use my own voice and not the voice of me pretending to be a writer of some sort, you know. And the memoir did amazingly well. I, you know, like I'm over a million sales. It's, uh, it's really taken off. So I thought, well, maybe I can get away with writing another book in the style of someone who doesn't write so well. You know what
0: I mean? <laughs> you know, it's a style. I think so. I mean, you could have done what a lot of people who are short on time and long on celebrity do, which is do – Fifteen or twenty hours of interviews with a professional writer and have them write the book, why did
1: you want to go through the torture of writing it yourself i mean i wasn't given that option, but now you say it i 'm full of regret <laughs> <laughs> I think do you know it was the circumstance really because I wrote it to fill um lockdown um when we were locked down. I thought if i 'm ever going to write a memoir, this is the time to do it. And I began to really enjoy the process because I didn't take it too seriously. It's not my career, as it were. And I enjoyed sitting on um, the sofa. I have a sofa that has a very long squab, long seat. So, you know, you can almost lie on it. But I never really made use of that facility, even though, of course, it cost a lot to get that extra slab of um, squab on the seat. But it was perfect and um and suddenly the sofa made sense and lockdown made a bit more sense. I was, you know, I was using it um to do something that I would never have done otherwise, which I, I know a lot of people did something similar, but that was my way through lockdown. And I missed it when I stopped. So I thought I'd have a go at a novel. So when you sat down
0: to write a novel, to write your book, The Clementine Complex, did you have an idea of what kind of book you wanted to write
1: when I first sat down, do you know the um, the author Murakami? Yeah, I thought I might be able to do something like that, and after a, a just perhaps even less than a day, maybe a couple of days, I realized that I couldn't do a book like that. <laughs> um, and then I—I I mean, then it's I ca- an ambitious goal, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> look, but you—you you have these. I don't. Know. They're the books I love. So I always wondered whether I could uh, get anywhere near that sort of feeling, that sort of atmosphere that he creates. Realized quickly I couldn't. So, sort of returned more to more to my comedy head. But I was always determined that there would be a story in there that was worth pursuing. And in a in a previous life, I was a lawyer when I was about twenty eight years old. As a lawyer, you sometimes use private detectives for serving summonses and various bits and pieces of work. And one of the private detectives that we used took me out for a drink one night and asked me if I would like to join his company, his firm. And he was willing to pay me a lot, lot more than I was earning as as a young lawyer. And I was too cowardly to take the job. But I always wondered what would have happened if I had taken that job, because only a couple of weeks after he offered it to me, he was murdered. He was found with an axe in his head in the car park of a pub near where I worked. And it's a very kind of famous, notorious case in this country because um, there's involvement from the police, from uh, newspaper groups, there's accusations of cover-ups and all sorts. So that was my starting point, just thinking... I wonder what would happen if me, Bob Mortimer, as a 28-year-old, had taken a different path. So I had my voice for the book already because the voice is me. Um, And I had the little scenario, a starting point, because maybe um, in a different life I would have taken that job and got involved in a very murky kind of underworld, you know?
0: What was it like when a guy you knew had an ax in his head?
1: it's a strange feeling y- yeah it made the work i was doing i was in a very deprived area of london i was doing a lot of criminal work and um a lot of housing work you know suing landlords and suing the um local authorities for substandard housing and cockroach infested housing and things like that and finding out that uh, this really lovely lad this chap had uh, had an axe in his head made it all very very real and not quite feel so much of a game you know that these criminals that i was representing you know there's another level that as their lawyer you're not aware of you know um my book is nothing to do whatsoever with that actual case but i'd just like to have a taking off point and that was my little taking off point was what if i'd taken that job with this firm of private investigators
0: did you feel as hapless as a young man as gary
1: seems to be in the novel yeah very much so i mean it's me trying to imagine how i would deal with those situations it's me looking at a version of bob mortimer that had uh, a little more oomph you know had a little bit was willing to stand his ground was willing to stand up to people i never had that i've never done that and i just thought that was interesting because i can write it as if i did and try and consider how that would have felt for me and uh Yeah. So that's kind of interesting because that was my little test was what would I do if I saw this girl? And of course, I would never have spoken to her. So I was saying, well, sorry for the purposes of this exercise, you've got to speak to her. You look visibly uncomfortable
0: thinking about (laughs) her right now. (laughs) (laughs) This fictional exercise from a book you've already (laughs) written. Edited multiple times. As soon as you described having to talk to a girl, you started turning sideways and
1: Yeah. It's um I was a very, very shy as a young man, and this sort of celebrity I achieved here from when I was in my late twenties, that cured me of a sort of general um social anxiousness, but it never cured me of the fear of approaching a lady.
0: The character Gary is has a very lonely life. Yeah, and I get the impression that until your late twenties, you had something of the same.
1: Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, so it was nice for me, even if only in um, in a novel, to break out from that because. There's a strength in being comfortable on your own. And there's um, I, and I can still have fond memories of my times at university as a solicitor where I was very isolated and so on. I, I never complain about it. It's fine. But um, it's frustrating um, thinking about what could have been if I didn't have that anxiety. So, yes, I suppose... Um, I well, suppose there's a bit of therapy in doing it, but not really. It's just uh, it's, when you get to my age, it's nice to look back on your life and consider it seriously and think about the um, things you did right and the things that you did wrong. You know, um, the Gary in the book is um, the version of me that I would like to have been. I suppose. I mean, he's
0: a bit of a doofus
1: too. Yeah, but I
0: like. <laughs> do you aspire, that. Do you aspire <laughs> to that part? <laughs>
1: No that's fine by me. That's fine by me. He's uh he's a he's a good lad. He's not going to bother anyone. He's not going to cause anyone any heat. He's not going to steal from anyone. He's not going to beat anyone up.
0: It's an interesting thing to aspire to in when writing a a version of yourself for a crime novel <laughs> like I I feel like mostly if we're going to turn some some portion of ourselves into a hero f- for genre fiction it's mostly like what would it be like if I was really good at riding horses and shooting guns or like, <laughs> what would it be like if I was always leaping into dangerous situations, uh, not what would it be like if I would never steal from anyone. <laughs> yeah,
1: but I, I wouldn't be an authentic voice then, Jesse. Do you know what I mean? That wouldn't be an authentic voice for me, um, doing it that way. I. It's funny enough that the, the, probably the most successful um TV show I've done in the 34 years of doing uh, TV shows is the one I'm doing at the moment, which is a show where I go fishing with another um, British comedian called Paul Whitehouse. And, you know, we have, we film as having very ordinary dull days. And Paul and I have kind of come to the conclusion that um, maybe the biggest achievement you can have in life is taking joy from the most ordinary of days, you know, so... He's a doofus, but he's doing okay.
0: (laughs) Even more with Bob Mortimer, still to come, back in a minute. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Support for NPR and the following message come from Satva. Satva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit dot slash NPR and save an additional $200. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I am talking with Bob Mortimer. He's a comic and actor. He's also half of the beloved British double act Vic and Bob. Besides that, he co-created and co-stars in the wonderful, quiet, hilarious British reality show Mortimer and Whitehouse Gone Fishing. In that show, he and comedian Paul Whitehouse go fishing. He's also the author of the new book, The Clementine Complex, which is a fun and funny mystery novel that is in bookstores now. Let's get into the rest of my interview with Bob Mortimer. I have to say, I watched your fishing show on an airplane coming back from London a month or so ago. Right. I watched two of them, and I think it is the the least that has happened in a television (laughs) show
1: of any television show I've ever watched. Yeah. But it's, it's, I mean, maybe the, the lockdown helped it as well, the timing of these things, but it's what I think they call it slow TV, just something um, unchallenging, rather lovely to look at in your front room, you know, just some, some gentle, nice company that stops you thinking about the um, the world that we're living in and its troubles, you know, so... I could never analyse why that shows worked so well for us, but um, it's serving some need because um, it's it's a big show. Yeah, see, getting there, Bob. Right, thank you so much. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going what? to get out of your way a bit and practice that. But there's fish there, Paul. I felt a couple sniffing at it. Did you? Yep. Mm-hmm. Bonne Bon chance, Marie. Bon chance to you, Jonathan.
0: Really liked it too. <laughs> I want to be clear about that. <laughs> like, I I was confused at how I liked something so much, where there was so little narrative conflict, mm. even jokes. There's yep. not really jokes in the show for a show hosted by two comedians.
1: Yeah, it was a factual commission. You know, it's not a comedy uh, commission by the BBC. Um, there's a few laughs every now and then in the kind of laughing at old men genre. But, uh, yeah, interesting, quite interesting to analyze why a show like that should possibly work. It's something to do with the times because, as you're hinting at, Jesse, it's terrible in some ways. You know, in terms of traditional TV, in terms of entertainment, it hasn't got anything.
0: I'm sorry to read compliments to you, an English person, but I watched a compilation video of you on uh, the I guess you'd call it a game show taskmaster. All oh, right, right, yes. Yeah. And this is a show where uh, the hosts of the show ask comedians to accomplish little goals. One of them in this was to... Uh, there was a coconut in a briefcase and you had to make it look like a businessman in 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, These odd things like this. And the top two comments, the most thumbs-up clicked of all of the comments on this video that had millions of views on it were... Bob is the most chaotic good person I have ever seen. Your Dungeons and Dragons alignment, I guess. <laughs> it's chaotic good. Um, and then the other one is, Bob Mortimer is what you get when a man never questions a single thought in his own head. I bloody love him.
1: <laughs> well, I suppose that's what I've just been hinting at. But, um it's uh it's both for me and and Vic who I started off with, it all it sounds a bit pompous really, but we that's that's the way we survived and the way we made progress was by just trying to be certain if we both laughed when we were writing it, then that was good enough for us. And later on in our career where we started asking the additional question of, yes, but would other people laugh? The material lost something. We're sure of it. Even though to be honest with you, it was more successful. But we think it lost something. It lost some of its sort of heart.
0: I want to play a clip from a uh, Reeves and Mortimer bit. Yeah, I presume it's a specific thing in the UK, but I gathered it to be the sort of idea of a fancy food show. And this is the two of you reviewing alcohols. Uh, and it's just you sitting at a table with two big bottles of liquor and like an airplane pack of peanuts and also at some point uh, a giant man holding a small baby walks by <laughs> let's take a listen
1: new balls new balls, Derek. right new balls we this week was this lovely pint of balls here let's have a look at color of that that is nice brown balls. Nicest of brown bowsers. Right. What would you have with that, Derek? Chester, uh, I'd have peanuts with it. Let's have a look at some peanuts here. In contrast, lovely. Look at that. Nice brown nuts. Next to it, nice brown balls. <laughs> hey, got gotcha right. balls for baby? You can't give, give a, a baby, baby balls.
0: <laughs> Just yelling stuff. <laughs>
1: I know, I mean, you know, it has got a following, Jesse. You know, it's I know, there are I mean, people I'm who laughing, adore it.
0: <laughs> I'm laughing right now, Bob. I mean the the things the things that strike me about it that seem reflective of of what you're doing and aren't necessarily they're not really Three Stooges things. They're not really Python things exactly. It has all of the kind of unhinged energy of uh, the three stooges, like there are some Python things that are like that, but a lot of Python things are really tightly controlled. And uh, this feels like it could go off the rails at any moment. Um, and it also is clearly just a function, like substantially a function of you guys liking the sound of the word booze pronounced bows, uh, And like booze, yeah, and just yelling that a lot, yeah. and then and then one of you guys like in a writing session raising your hand and being like, "What if we said baby booze?"
1: You can't <laughs> like, give a baby booze, Jesse. You can't <laughs> do. It. Yeah, it's uh, it's always been very uh, a bit divisive our humor, but um. Yeah, it's just that I think that's the nature of our our process, you know, of not taking that extra step of um, trying to decide whether other people will like it. Um, Yeah, I like all that old stuff. I'm going to play
0: another little bit. And this one is, it's another pretty simple setup, which is that you are on stage and you look like your foot is caught in like a bear trap kind of thing. and You're crying out. So let's take a listen.
1: Help. Help. What's the matter? Is it not obvious? (laughs) Actually, it's not. Help. Help. Look, don't think of me in any way callous are indifferent, but I can't actually say what the problem is. Vic, do you want me to spell it out for you? I wouldn't mind. Well, I will then. This cuff button here <laughs> is dangling <laughs> on a very, very thin thread. Any moment now, it could potentially drop off. What?
0: No! Yes. No! Yes. No! Yes. no! Now he moves.
1: Now he moves.
0: <laughs> Again, just the sheer amount of silly voice and yelling for this premise
1: yeah um, it is this
0: it is a very it's a wonderful very slight premise
1: <laughs> it's as slight as a mouse's handbag yes it really is but no i mean yeah but it's fun it's very traditional comedy really just like um you know undermining your expectations i'm my foot's in a bear trap but my problem is my buttons falling off but You know, we did it with great belief and (laughs) and passion. And uh, yeah, I don't know what to say, really. I enjoy them. um, And it's nice to hear them again. Your
0: career went from, as we would say in the States, zero to 60 when you and Vic Reeves partnered. You did not have a career before the two of you met up and started doing comedy together. And, you know, you were... A big deal on television within a couple of years of partnering yeah was it hard for you to i guess understand and value your own contributions since that line in your life was so clear and had
1: everything to do with this partnership to value my own contribution yeah Yeah, no i didn't value it a great deal at um at the beginning because From my point of view, Vic Reeves, the lad I doubled up with, he he is the UK's greatest ever comedian, for me, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I had this awful job, this ordinary life going on as a solicitor that just, you know, I could see another 40 years of this um, terror. And he dragged me out of that. Um, So, no, I just felt like, um, you know, a contributor just incredibly lucky to be there. It's nice to come into a comedy career. I'm very, I'm very grateful that I did have another career beforehand, just so I could, you know, just to, to really appreciate how lucky I was to be living that life. You know, when I'd been doing a, a seven day a week nine till five job. But no, I was very grateful for that. I, I later on, and me and Jim have spoken about it. I realised that. It was very important for him to have me there to unlock various aspects of Vic Reeves. Um, So I'm very proud of my contribution then. But you're right to say, no, I didn't particularly value my contribution for the first two years at all, to be honest with you. I thought I did okay, backed him up, you know, as a good wingman. But on reflection, I think I was playing quite an important role. So I looked back on those days very fondly and I was with Jim the other day laughing with him and... uh, yeah, we we said similar things to each other that, you know, like, we were good back then, really. You know, we were all right. We did good.
0: There was this documentary
1: maybe 15
0: years ago on public television here in the States about your show of shows and Caesar's Hour, which was this show that was on American television in the early 50s, one of the first big comedies on American television. And famously, the writers on this show were... Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and Neil Simon and all of these legendary geniuses, right? And the star of the show was Sid Caesar, who in some ways, this was the peak of his career. He was a alcoholic and a real jerk um, in a lot of ways. But like, one of the things that I remember from watching that is Sid Caesar was such a powerful performer physically. Like, so he was physically large and big and specific, like could hit things hard. It wasn't just wild nonsense. And all these little nabishy comedy legends, Carl Reiner, a big guy too. But um, it was almost like they all took comfort in him as their giant comedy dad. Hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and... There was something in there that, that reminded me of you ending up in this show with Vic Reeves, who's a lot bigger than you, has a big presence, and the two of you are making these huge choices comedy-wise. And he's professionally your big brother, right? Because he, he's the one that said, you come on stage with me. Yeah. That there's like some comfort in that bigness.
1: Yeah, no, I was kind of, you know, like, yeah, hiding under his cape, you know, just um, fueling what he was doing. It's like, I mean, he had all the skill sets that I didn't have. He was confident. He was loud. Um, He could do it. He could walk the walk. You know, I could think about it, but I would never have done it. But under his wing, I did it, you know. And um, talking, performing in front of an audience is very different from approaching an individual but um, that was a gift. That was a big step for me, performing, you know, in front of an audience and took me a step nearer to being able to just talk to people generally, you know, on a one-to-one basis. But yeah, he was kind of like, yeah, my dad, my big brother's right. Yeah. He like, like you know, my big daft, funny brother who'd look after me. And if I did what he needed me to do, everything
0: would be all right. I just came back from touring with my friend and colleague, John Hodgman, and on the show we do together i'm very much the second banana and once in a while someone will ask me how i feel about being the second banana like don't you want to be the star of the show or whatever and the like real truth about it is that it is so much easier and more comfortable <laughs> to be the second banana yeah like I have a little brother big- brother relationship with John to some extent, and like I think it, what a joy it is to be up there on stage and know that if something goes wrong, it's probably his fault
1: <laughs> probably yeah, no I agree. <laughs> and that
0: if I do something good it's it's like a bonus, you yeah know?
1: yeah, and it's um there's a weird sort of alchemy that is that the kind of the junior partner is often the one that subtly over time gets more embraced by the public, which is weird. It is not done deliberately, but it's, it kind of happens. But I agree with you. I've been asked that so many times over the years, and I've said, no, I really love being the sidekick. I was used to be called the, the sidekick. But whenever I said it, I didn't know whether it was because I was lacking conviction and I was lying, but I always felt like nobody believed me. Now I've I'm at the front of it. I know I was right. 100% is much better.
0: Did you want a comedy career for yourself?
1: Um absolutely not. I was the least likely person I can imagine to have ever got up on a stage. And when when I um I was working as a solicitor, I didn't know anyone in London. It's a big old place to 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 be on your own, you know. And by chance, I went along to this comedy night um, and it was a revelation. It was an extraordinary show, the Vic Reeves Big Night, a quite extraordinary where's this come from, this show, this new, I mean, nothing's new, but it felt like a completely new type of comedy. Um So that became, like, my life, really. That's the only thing I had outside of my work. And it was just a tiny thing. I'm just talking audiences of maybe seven the first time I went, maybe 20, maybe maximum 35 people. You know, that's all it was. So it was just like a little friendship group that I'd, I'd wandered in on, and they were quite receptive to me. We were all from the same part of the country, up in the northeast. And, yeah... Maybe Jim saw something in me. I don't know. Maybe he saw something into me, in me, but he started asking me to come up and do stuff. Um, but when we were offered a television series, all I did was take 12 weeks off work. I fully intended to go back to being a solicitor, you know? And I thought, but I can't, you know, I can't resist the idea of doing a TV show for 12 weeks. But I never went back. I never reclaimed my little briefcase that I used to keep my papers in.
0: We'll wrap up with Bob Mortimer after a quick break. Keep it locked. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. If you're a business owner, you know these sounds mean sales. And from the sound of it, your business is growing. Whether you're fulfilling orders from your home office or warehouse, Stamps.com helps you stress less about mailing and shipping and spend more time doing what you love most. Listening to ASMR. I mean, growing your business. But as you grow, so does the need for efficiency. Stamps.com simplifies your shipping and mailing process. Import orders from wherever you sell online. Find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times. Instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers. And buy shipping and mailing supplies when you run low. Save time and money on mailing and shipping. Get started at stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate
1: reflect on their lives.
0: What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago?
1: Dressing, like not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never <laughs> stop. Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jordan Cruciola, host of Feeling Seen, where we start by asking our guests just one question. What movie character made you feel seen?
0: I knew exactly what it was. Clementine from
1: Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind.
0: Joy Wang slash... Shabu Tupaki.
1: That one question launches amazing conversations about their lives, the movies they love, and about the past, present, and future of entertainment.
0: Roy in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind.
1: I worry about what this might say about me, but I've brought Tracy Flick in the film Election. So if you like movies, diverse perspectives, and great conversations, check us out. Oof, this is real. New episodes of Feeling Scene drop every week on MaximumFun.org.
0: You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bob Mortimer. He's half of the double act Vic and Bob and the author of the new novel, The Clementine Complex. You described yourself as being okay being on your own and having that be a skill and a a gift. But I also feel like, you know, you had very real, serious loneliness in your young life. Your father died unexpectedly when you were very young. Yeah. You and your mother, not that long after that, had sort of financial ruin because your house burned down. You ended up separate part of your childhood as your mom tried to get things back together. You said you did not have friends in law school. (laughs) 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 Like you really didn't have friends as you describe it, right? And you had a thing that you had dedicated your life to previously, which was that you played soccer or football, very seriously um, and had been sort of told at 16 by the club team for which you played, yeah, this is the end of the line for you, Ace. Yeah. And that was like the one thing that you had poured your life's energy into. Yeah.
1: I, yes, that was what I was going to be. I would, that, you know, My place in the world was defined by my skills as a as a football player. And so,
0: like, I don't know if... I believe how okay you say you were being by yourself,
1: but I might be wrong i don't know is that real well, like were you really okay well i mean it's i mean it's 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 interesting. I was okay for sure, but yeah, of course, I always you know from as a young boy in a playground looking over to the group that was having fun to university looking over to the people in a bar maybe or who were obviously part of a um Yeah, I probably wished I was over there with them, Um, but I never never equated the loneliness with unhappiness, I don't think. Um, You did have
0: some major depression as a young man, too.
1: I did. I was, uh, um, I mean, who knows, but I was just getting along, doing my work in my little um, student accommodation, and... God it's hard to remember why, but I took a tab of l s d which is unbelievably unlike me. I'm not someone who'd had any from where I'm from had any contact with drugs or anything, but this happened, and I took it um and yeah for so the next day, from waking up for i think something like maybe four to five years, yeah, I had really bad depression you know on um, on medication and so on, so I always blamed it at that time on that LSD tablet. Truth is there's probably a lot more to it than that, but um at the time I put it down to you know to a blip that had caused in my my brain's chemistry.
0: Was it comfortable or uncomfortable when you went from your one thing being going to a comedy show once a week that 12 people were in the audience for to being a famous person with a television
1: show two years later yeah i mean you know it might not even have been two years i can remember at the time there was an awful lot of political stand-up comedy that was that was the comedy in the uk at that, that moment in time and we went from this uh little club in a pub to the tv and in terms of it being commissioned probably in less than a year to be honest with you um and there was quite a few people at the time on the circuit at the time who really resented us for that. But you had to have seen the show and you you had to kind of understand, I understand now how TV works. You know, there was something new. So, yeah, I realise now, of course, producers started sniffing around it and TV channels. So we never felt too bad about it because, yeah, they came to us. We didn't go to them. You know, we, we the thought of this stupid show being on television it wouldn't even enter your mind you know but i realize now of course it would it would enter the mind of the tv companies you know but
0: what about the experience of it did did you feel i mean it was obviously i'm sure it was super exciting but did you feel safe and comfortable in this just whole new
1: way of living your life um it didn't feel so different i just had this massive sort of weight of gratitude surrounding me that I didn't have to do this awful, pursue this awful career that I'd chosen for the rest of my life. That's my main memory of that time. That's like, uh, not the fame or being interviewed or, Hey, we're on telly. It was just waking up every day and saying, I am not going into this lawyer's office today. Are you telling me that you were happy to leave behind your life as a celebrated cockroach <laughs> lawyer? <laughs> I was very, and I'm very grateful to it. As I say, I'm very grateful for that. It's like I, I had um, a triple heart bypass, and I've um, maybe six or seven years ago. And I have a lot of gratitude for that as well, as to the wake-up call that it was, um, and to making me appreciate and make use of the time that I had left. And I similarly with my legal career. Um, I've never lost that gratitude for leaving it behind. And I, you know, a lot of my contemporaries, an awful lot of, uh, in this country, the comedians, that's all they've ever done. They started on the circuit when they were 17, 18, 19. And I think it messes, messes them up. That's what I see. You do
0: seem to regard your career with a sort of combination of of placid gratitude and maybe the slightest bit of I don't know, bemusement or something like that. And that's not something that a lot of entertainers can muster.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe it's because, if that's true, it's like that I had no ambitions in that respect for fame or for um, to be on a stage. I'm well aware that I entered it under the sort of, uh, on the shirt tails of a uh, Vic, Um I've never found it a great effort, I'm not saying that anything I've ever done is of any particular merit, but I've never found it an effort to do what I do. With with a lot, when me and Jim did live stuff, when I do live stuff now, even the sketches that some of them that you've played, we don't know absolutely what we're going to say. We just know the attitude we're going to be taking to, to the little scenario. As I say, it's always felt a bit effortless. So you know you can't get grandiose about it. It's just what we do, and um, and then it ain't no big deal. I like all the old stuff we've done, and I like I I like the (laughs) I like the book because the book was uh, such a surprise that, um, that I suppose every author fears this. But I thought that it would be ripped to shreds, you know, because it's not a literary work. But it wasn't. People took it for what it was, and enjoyed just listening to my voice in the book. So that's nice that my voice did okay for me. You know, that's 58 years worth to get my voice to there, and people found it reasonably pleasing. (laughs) So that's, you know, I'll call that a little achievement.
0: Well, Bob, I'm so grateful to you for taking the time, and I, I really enjoyed reading the book. There was a lot of real classic me laughing out loud and then yelling at my friend across the room, hey, 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 listen to this sentence. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. It was, was nice to get to talk to you.
1: Thank you very much, Jesse. Thank you. And
0: all the best for the future. Bob Mortimer. His new book, The Clementine Complex, is available in bookstores everywhere and at bookshop.org. Mortimer and White House Gone Fishing is also a terrific book. Just absolutely lovely television show. You can watch that on YouTube. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. I'm still working from a little bedroom in the front of my house, but I'm moving to a shed in out behind my house and... Uh, my friend Stefan was nice enough to let me come over to his house and check out projector screens. Stefan knows everything about projector screens. Pretty soon I'm going to be watching screener movies on a real screen. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Welcome to our new Maximum Fun production, fellow Daniel Juecias who just joined us this week get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is by our pal Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our theme music is called Huddle Formation. It was written and recorded by the Go Team. Thanks to the Go Team. Thanks to their record label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on Instagram, at Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We are also on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from State Farm. As a State Farm agent and agency owner, Lakeisha Gaines is passionate about empowering other small businesses. In the last several years, there are more business owners than we can count. Businesses are opening up quite frequently. And I think that shows the need, the dreams, and the desires of the community to have the independence and to have the financial freedom that's important to them. The reason why it's so important to me to be out there to share information and to educate the community is because I know that a dream doesn't always help you to be successful. You need the competency, you need the wisdom, you need the knowledge.
1: That's where we come in as State Farm agents. Our ability to be able to teach over 100 years of experience in this world to say, hey, we got you. You got this and we got this. Let's do it together.
0: Talk to your local agent about small business insurance from State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.